Hello, and welcome to the Skeleton Factory Podcast. Episode 31. This is Adam, coming to you from Austin, Texas. Excuse me a moment. I have to clear my throat. <coughs> Man. The allergies in Austin, Texas, I tell you, it's, uh, I think I might have a touch of the cedar fever or something because every time I get hit with them allergies, I sound like a robotic woman. It's the strangest thing. Well, on this episode, we'll be taking a look at the sequel to Tetsuo the Iron Man. Tetsuo 2, Body Hammer. But before we get into that, let's catch up with what I've been up to. I recently headed out to Alamo Draft House over on South Lamar and went to their Terror Tuesday night, which has been fantastic. And I also saw Tetsuo 2, Blood Hammer there not too long ago. So that was great. But recently I went and saw a really kind of old, crispy, (laughs) 35-millimeter copy of Lamberto Bava's 1985 film Demons. And I've never seen Demons uh, in a theater before. And it was great. It was great. The the place was packed. There was a lot of people there. And a lot of... uh, It was just cool to see a lot of people show up really enthusiastic about a movie that fucking old. So that (laughs) was... That was cool. And the movie plays great to a crowd, you know. There's a lot of silly shit in the movie, but it still like has really good special effects. The I the premise of the of the film's really great. It's about a bunch of people who go to this uh movie theater. It's a, it's like a bunch of Italian people who are dubbed into English who are in a theater in Germany <laughs> and they go watch this film that is essentially possessed. So the film starts playing and now it possesses the theater itself where the people in the theater can't escape it. A couple of people in the theater become possessed. They become, well, they become demons. They're essentially zombies, but like rage virus zombies, but they, begin biting other people and infecting those people and it becomes a whole fight for survival it becomes a very uh, dawn of the dead type situation and it's a it's a fun premise for a movie and i had a good time and so yeah that was over at uh, alamo draft house uh, brought to us by the good people over at agfa and they've they kill it every terror tuesday it's fun. They always have a good lineup of stuff, so I definitely recommend that. If you're in the Austin area or anywhere else that has Alamo Draft House, they they have Terror Tuesdays at I think every Alamo Draft House. I think. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, I forgot in the in the movie Demons, there's this uh, character named uh, Nina. She's kind of one of uh, there's like a group of I don't want to call them like a street gang or anything like that, but they're basically these like druggy party kids. And, 
one of the girls in the group's name is Nina. And if you've seen Demons, you know who I'm talking about. And I was like, whoa, like like my one of my first girlfriends. <laughs> um, like when I was in high school, looks like the character of Nina. Like just kind of hot and dirty looking and she wasn't snorting cocaine out of a soda can or anything like that or but um but she looks a lot like her anyways uh <laughs> let's jump to the the next installment of the skeleton factory book club and uh let me just bring you up to date i've been if you listen to last episode on episode 30 and that episode was titled Japanese Cyberpunk Body Horror and Satan. I talked about a book called The Last Testament of Anton Sandor LeVay, written by Boyd Rice. And I discussed the intro and there's really not numbered chapters in this book, but it was essentially the first chapter i guess if you want to call it that but every section has its own kind of like subcategory of other sections and i read the most the basically the first main section of the book and it is called crime buff and crime buff is broken up into three different parts they're like little essays or something the first part is called uh the black pope and the Black Dahlia Killer. And it's basically a discussion that Boyd Rice and Anton LaVey had at one point where basically the story is Anton LaVey was, he had a friend that worked for, I think, the LA Times, and I think Anton LaVey was like a photography photographer for the LA Times, something like that. And the guy somehow got a copy of a script about the Black Dahlia murder. Uh, not the death metal band, but uh, the actual Black Dahlia murder. And the guy looked through it, and I guess the there was certain information in the script that only the police would have known, certain members of the media, and the actual killer could have possibly known there's so he, this guy asked Anton LaVey like, Hey, I want to go check this guy out. Like I want to go to his house. Do you want to go with me? And he's like, sure, let's go. let's go. So they go to this guy's place and it's like a trailer and they knock on his door and this like old dude opens the door and he, you know, they introduce themselves, say, Hey, we're here about your script. Uh, you know, maybe come in and he's like, yeah, come on in. And they sit down and they kind of cut to the chase and tell him like, look, there's certain things in your script that only the killer could have possibly known. And at that point, this older man, uh, basically confessed. He's like, yeah, well I did it. So <laughs> you got me. And it wasn't like they were trying to extract a confession from this guy or apprehend him or anything like that. 
But the guy was basically like, yeah, I did it. I was dating her, but she was kind of dating a whole bunch of guys and using them for their money, and it was a whole thing. And uh, I got pissed off one night, and I just fucking killed her. And, you know, they're Anton Levine and this guy were kind of in a weird position because, I mean, they didn't really have a lot of time had gone by it by that point when they didn't really have proof. I mean, I guess if a a script would be circumstantial at best, I suppose, you know, it's not like you can send someone to prison because it's like, okay, you wrote a script way after the fact and it was pretty damn close to what actually happened. I don't know. I I don't think that's enough to actually convict anybody. But it was a whole thing where they said they didn't, they didn't turn the guy in. They didn't snitch on him or anything. They were just figured that this is some old dude and he's probably going to die soon. And why turn him in to you know spend his final days in prison? Um, you know, I mean, he probably died before a trial even began. So they they were just like, fuck it, and. Is that is that story true? I don't know. <laughs> it it made for an interesting read, at least. But um, I mean, to my knowledge, no one actually, no one actually was caught uh, as you know the the person who the the black Dahlia killer. Like nobody. I, don't know, I mean, to my knowledge, I don't know. You, you true crime fans out there, if if I'm missing something, please uh, let me know. You just, just send me a message on Instagram at skeleton underscore factory. But, uh, but yeah, that was the first part of that uh, chapter. The second part was a second story where it was an interview with Boyd Rice and Anton LaVey. And... This part was called The Butcher of Plainfield. And The Butcher of Plainfield is in reference to the Wisconsin serial killer, Ed Gein. And there was a whole section about Ed Gein and his crimes and Anton LaVey. Well, a buddy of Anton LaVey who worked at a, he was a, he worked for the local paper out in Wisconsin. He was actually able to get Anton LaVey in to talk to Ed Gein uh, once he was, while he was in custody. So there's a lot of discussion about his crimes, you know, the state of his house, all the relics, <laughs> all the, all the relics in his house, like belts made of nipples and, you know, furniture and boxes of ears and masks and gloves made of human skin, shit like that. So that's basically the Butcher of Plainfield uh, section. And then the, the final section was called The Old Man. And The Old Man is an excerpt from a book that Boyd Rice wrote in 2011 called Twilight Man. And it was, I guess there was a lot, I guess there was, a few stories in that book, Twilight Man, that um, there, there were story there were stories about or uh, that Anton, uh, Anton LaVey. and but um, to my knowledge, I don't think Boyd Rice ever mentioned Anton LaVey by name. He just referred to him in the book as the old man, and 
I've never read Twilight, man. And in fact, I wasn't even aware that it existed until I read this book. So, so far, this book is going pretty good and I uh, find it pretty interesting. And I think uh, once I'm done with it, I might go check out Twilight, man. And that book, uh, Twilight Man, from just the synopsis I read on uh, on uh, online, was it's more about specifically Boyd Rice and his time as um, he was he was kind of not necessarily a security guard, but he was like he worked for an alarm company, and he went and monitored buildings that were that were rigged up with alarms through the company that he worked for. So he, you know, he was wandering buildings in the middle of the night with a gun, (laughs) sort of that thing, sort of his time doing that out in San Francisco. So, you know, I was like, oh, this sounds like an interesting book as well. So, so, so far so good. I'm liking the last Testament of Anton Sandra LeVay. It's, uh, it's just like a collection of short stories and interviews and essays and stuff like that. And it's got some nice pictures sprinkled through it. So I look forward to, uh, bringing me up to date on the next section that I that I'll read and I'll bring it up next episode. Um what was it the previous episode I mentioned that Anton LaVey was a consultant on a film called The Car. It was a 1977 movie starring James Brolin, the father of Josh Brolin. Uh you may know James Brolin uh if you ever seen Pee-wee's Big Adventure at the end the Pee-wee is at a drive-in, and the movie that they're watching is a movie about his life. But it's like, it's like a movie adaptation of his life. So, in the movie, Pee-wee's basically a spy, <laughs> and he's played by uh, James Brolin. And the name, his name in the film is P.W. Herman. So. But yeah, so that guy, P.W. Herman, that's James Brolin. And he was in a film called The Car. And I only, I watched that because in the last testament of Anton Sandra LeVay, they discussed that Anton LeVay was a consultant on the movie. And I was like, okay, I'll check the movie out. And the movie, you know, it's just one of those things where it's shot cool. It's got a cool location. It's got a decent cast, but the you know it's basically a you know it's not the best uh, car murdering people uh, <laughs> movie ever made. And basically, the only way you would know that Anton Levy was even really involved in the film is in the very beginning of the film, there is a quote uh, before the opening credits by Anton LaVey. And uh, the quote is, O great brothers of the night who rideth out upon the hot winds of hell, who dwelleth in the devil's lair, move and appear. And that is, uh, that's actually from the satanic Bible. I actually, recognize that part but you know other than that i don't um i mean i watched the movie and i don't i don't know how anton levey would even be i'm like i don't know what he would be consulting necessarily necessarily i don't know i didn't dig too much into it but 
I will say the movie The Car, not the biggest fan. I mean, on paper, it seems like I would I would like it a lot. You know, it's like evil car torments this town, starts killing people, and then the James Brolin, who's like uh, the sheriff, and his like ragtag group of deputies and shit have to bond. Or they need to come together uh, to stop this car that's seemingly indestructible. But without the help, the guy who actually kind of saves the day in the car is this character who he's kind of like this. He's like the town. He's not really the town drunk, but he's a drunk. <laughs> and he's like a he's like if he like beats his wife and shit. And um, but you find out that he owns like a demolition company. You know, if you need something blown up with dynamite, you call this guy. So this dude's in jail because he fucking slapped his wife around earlier in the movie. But at some point, James Brolin realizes that they're going to need a demolition expert in order to take out this evil car that's killing people. So they he, they release him from jail, and then with the help of this guy, they blow they push the car off a cliff and then blow it up with, like, a whole lot of dynamite. <laughs> And then it's it's all blown up and, you know, buried under probably hundreds of tons of stone. But but the guy who played the demolition guy, the, the, the guy who slapped his wife around and shit, is this guy named uh, Robert Golden Armstrong Jr. And you may remember him as Prune Face from the Dick Tracy film. <laughs> So I was watching this movie and then like all of a sudden that guy pops up. I'm like, hey, it's prune face. <laughs> so I I uh I got a kick out of that. Anyways, that's not important. What is important is that the car not that good of a movie. So I um I think Anton LaVey may have been a consultant on The Devil's Reign. I think, starring Ernest Borgnine. Who else is in that? I think John Travolta is briefly in it. Anyways, I think he consulted on that as well. And that's a way better movie. So don't watch The Car. Watch The Devil's Reign. That's, in fact, if Anton LaVey was a consultant, which I think he was, but I'm not 100% sure. Anyways, the king of all uh, cars killing people movies is Christine. Christine's the greatest cars, a car killing a bunch of people movie ever made. But I will say a close second. And I like, after I watched the car, I was like, well, I was basically like, well, that sucked. And then, um, I was like, I remembered a movie from my childhood that, I hadn't seen it in a long time, but it has a car in it that kills people. <laughs> but it's like an avenging car. Like, it kills people, but only bad people. It's like Arnold in uh, True Lies. It's like, it's like killed people, but they were all bad. Yeah. There was a film called The Wraith from, I think, 86, 85, 86. 
And the Wraith is fucking fantastic. It's it's one of those, uh, like, if you're doing a, a movie night and you need a good 80s double feature, like, watch, if let's say you're watching Roadhouse or something, like, watch The Wraith. Like, Wraith and Roadhouse. That's a wonderful slice of 80s action because in, in The Wraith uh, you have... Uh, was it of but you have this gang of like street racer guys it's basically fast and the furious but way cooler <laughs> there's this race, there's this gang of race car guys who sort of like uh they race other people with cool cars and they kind of cheat and then they win the other person's car. And if they're like, well, I won the race, so if you don't give me your car, me and my gang are going to fuck you up sort of thing. So they basically just rip people off for their fucking cars and shit, whatever. But but the, uh, but the that gang ended up murdering this dude who was um, dating a, a, a very young Sherlyn Finn. Very hot. Very hot in, in the Wraith. Sherlyn Finn... You, you'll remember from uh, Twin Peaks, of course. And uh, they, like, kill her boyfriend after they got done having the uh, the sex. And that their boyfriend basically got reincarnated as Charlie Sheen and came back as, like, a ghost. But he has this badass car. And this badass car, like, rolls up on different members of this car gang. And then every time they race Charlie Sheen's race, go like ghost car, um, which they, he ends up, uh, crashing the other guy's car and then they explode and they die. <laughs> and Charlie Sheen and his ghost car are completely unharmed. So they successfully murder the entire gang. And then he has sex with Sherilyn Finn. And then he, uh, um, gives his ghost car to his uh, his younger brother, and then that's the end of the movie. <laughs> but there's fucking explosions. There's car chases. There's people snorting WD forty. There's boobs. It's fucking great. The soundtrack's not half bad. So uh, check out the Wraith. That is a good. Uh, car that kills people movie it's like that and christine those top two of all time you know and um yeah man more people because most i think most people know about christine but i don't think they know much about the wraith you know back in the day you'd be watching uh usa network and commander usa would come on (laughs) and introduce the wraith Commander USA was like this superhero character that um, had a show on the USA Network, and that was back in the day when there was like Rhonda Shear was a host, and Gilbert Gottfried. He had like hosts for every time a they couldn't just show a movie on TV. They actually had to have like somebody hosting the thing, and I kind of I I miss that. You know, you still have uh, what was it? Joe Bob Briggs is still on. Um, He's on Shutter now with the last driving and shit. You know, he's kind of like one of the last of those types of characters. But yeah, 
Commander USA actually was kind of fucking corny anyways. But anyways, without any further ado, let's get into the movie. Tetsuo 2 Bloodhammer from 1992, directed by Shinya Tsukamoto, and once again starring Tomorrow Taguchi. Now, let me give you a quick disclaimer. This movie doesn't make a lot of sense, and I've had to watch it several times in preparation for this episode. Because a movie that's massively confusing but visually cool, you know, it's like, it's hard to, after the fact, try to describe what happened in the film to anybody. So I'm going to do my best to describe exactly what happens in the movie (laughs) and try to tie everything together to where it seems like I told you a movie that has a story and makes sense. But it's really confusing. Like, it's one of those movies, kind of like the first movie, where you, you'll watch it once just to absorb it. Just to have your eyeballs and your brain just sort of kind of comprehend the aesthetic. And then you watch it a second time and you start, like, okay, memorizing characters' names and their relations to each other. And then, you know, by the third, fourth, fifth time you watch it, you're like, okay, I, I get what the movie's doing and what it's saying, and why it's saying it. And even then, you might not even get it. So, okay. End of disclaimer. Let's get into the movie. Tetsuo 2 Bloodhammer. Unlike the first movie, this one is actually in color. So, um, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that. It was fine, I guess. It's in color. And so we open with the, uh, the metal fetishist, played by... Um, Shinya Tsukamoto, the director, with a hair lip. Um, the metal fe- uh, fetishist um, uses his finger gun uh, to kill, uh, let's call him a salary man. Not the salary man, but a salary man. This guy looks like he's probably walking home from work in a suit. He's walking through a tunnel, and he points a f- this finger gun at him. He makes a gun out of his hand, points it at the guy, and the guy's like, hey, what the fuck are you doing, weirdo? And then he goes, bang, bang, and then and then the guy actually gets shot. You're like, oh, fuck. And then it cuts, the camera cuts to him, and it's, uh, it's the metal fetishist from the last movie. So, so after he kills the guy, we zoom in uh, on this percussive beating noise. And it like zooms in and does like this x-ray view of the inside of his chest to reveal a beating metal heart. In case you forgot, this is the metal fetishist from the first movie. He has powerful psychic abilities. He can uh, transform his body into this almost like robotic weapon. Um, He has, uh, I guess you would call it telekinetic powers over metal can move it and manipulate it and whatnot and he's like he's he's like a japanese magneto except uh, he can conjure guns out of nowhere so we cut to a a breakfast scene and the breakfast scene is with the salary man from the original film um 
played by Tamara Taguchi, reprising his role. Yes, reprising his role, and his character is uh, Taniguchi Tumu, or Tomu. My pronunciation is not amazing, but I believe it's Taniguchi Tumo. So, um, and also we have uh, Nobu Kanoka, who is uh, reprising her role this time as uh, Taniguchi's wife, Kana. So they're sitting around the table having breakfast, and they have a little kid. And their kid's name is Minori, played by uh, Kenosuke Tomioka. And Taniguchi uh, tells his wife and son about a wonderful dream that he had uh, that night where he was standing in this open space with his family. And he seemed very happy. It was just the three of them in this sort of like desolate open space together. And his wife, his wife. So Kana asked him if he remembers anything from before he was adopted. So, so like seven, eight years old. And he says, no, and he has no memories of his life before that, before he was adopted. Uh, no memories, not even pictures. So then we cut to um, the three of them. They go out to the, to a mall where, and this movie is interesting. It has, it's very um, over, well, it's, it's kind of low key overwhelming. And uh, I almost want to say like oppressive with, with how much like, like the, the frame of the movie, every frame would just be filled with buildings and, escalators and mirrors and windows and skyscrapers, you know, and and like you you would get, you would catch slivers of like the sun or the sky or anything like that. It's just like, like it's just buildings and metal and glass, like constantly. And so they all go out to the mall. Uh, We're waiting for them at the top of an uh, escalator are, uh, two future thug dudes. And these guys, they look like, um, they look like Joe Estevez and Robert Zadar and soul taker. <sighs> Did you ever see soul taker? <laughs> it's, um, was a mystery science theater. 3000 did a wonderful episode on soul taker. I would definitely recommend watching that over the actual film soul taker. But basically what Joe Estevez and Robert Zadar are wearing in that movie. That's what, uh, that's what these two thug guys from the future look like. They, um, what do they look like? They look like, they look like Daniel Baldwin and the film Harley Davidson and the Marlboro man. You ever see that movie? Just or Lawrence Fishburne in the Matrix. <laughs> they were wearing trench coats. That's what I'm trying to say. They were wearing long ankle length leather trench coats, like buttoned up to their Adam's apple. 
And that's how you know they're uh, in the future. Uh, they were, <laughs> and these uh, these thug dudes they they grab their son Minori and start to run off with him. They grab him like in the middle of a store too, like a like a record store. And Taniguchi gets like they shoot him like in the stomach with this weird looking gun. It looks like something out of fucking the Jetsons or some shit. Like, but it it's not. It wasn't like a regular gun. Like he goes down momentarily and then just pops back up. And him and his wife Kana uh, start chasing these two guys. So they. They're chasing these guys through the mall, and then they run up to the roof. So, um, at one point, they kind of fake out uh, to Gucci that, like, maybe they threw the kid off the roof because, like, no one's around, but the kid's shoes are, like, on the edge of the building. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe they thought he jumped out of his own shoes and off the building. I don't know. But uh, it's, it's, it's enough to fake out to Gucci, and... So they basically get the get the drop on him, and they they uh, they basically uh, go to throw Taguchi off the building, but Taguchi manages to like hang on to the edge of the building, and he's basically just holding on by his by his fingertips, and you know they probably could have shot him or whatever, but um, they leave him alive, and they're just like, all right, bye. So they just assume he's going to probably hang there until he falls and dies. And this is a huge fucking building. It's a hell of a drop. So, <laughs> like, right as Taguchi's about to lose his grip and drop, his wife, like, appears out of nowhere and catches him by his wrists and pulls him up back on the roof and, you know, before he could plummet to his death and you know, explode on the sidewalk below. Uh, so once she pulls him up on the roof, you know, we're pleased to find out that they didn't take Minori. Like he's there. So the two soul taker dudes vanish and Minori is unharmed, unharmed. So after this, um, <laughs> we actually get a, a training montage. We get a sweet eighties training montage where he envisions, um, Okay, this is going to sound weird. This whole thing is going to sound weird. Okay, I just want you guys to understand this. Um, it's going to sound weird, but bear with me. Because if you actually watch this movie, everything I'm saying is completely uh, accurate in every way. So, we get a training montage where Taguchi is envisioning oily men's bodies exercising. It looks like... Uh, CNC Music Factory's Here We Go, Let's Rock and Roll music video. Remember that? Um, so afterwards, after the this brutal workout, he's shaking on the ground like he has an advanced form of rhabdo uh, myelosis. That's like what CrossFit people get when they work out too hard and they, they piss uh, brown. Or maybe it's blood, I don't know. Rhabdomyelosis. I just heard, I've only heard it called rhabdo, but yeah, that's the long word for it. <laughs> so we jump back to the, uh, back to their house where, um, where, uh, Taniguchi 
and his wife get this uh, ominous phone call. Uh, and uh, Taniguchi uh, picks up the phone, and the voice on the phone tells him that he shouldn't have, you shouldn't have left this back, shouldn't have left your back door open. And um, they're like, oh shit, uh, where's the kid? Kid's gone. They stole the kid again. So back to the roof we go, except this time we're on the roof of their apartment building. Right? Okay, so. So we're on the roof of the apartment building where uh, after being told by one of the soul taker dudes that they dropped him. So they get up there and they're like, oh, sorry, we already dropped him. <laughs> already threw your kid off the building. And um, and then Taniguchi gets like super pissed and his arm begins to turn into the uh the iron man's arm because that was a thing from the first movie where um he in the first movie he began to mutate and transform into this metallic creature called the iron man and one of his hands was essentially like a cannon like a like a mega man <laughs> arm cannon so they're like yeah we dropped your kid off the roof and Taniguchi's like er that makes me mad and his arm transforms uh, into the like arm, the like Mega Man arm, and the... so like one of the dudes is standing there, and he's holding up the <laughs> the boy's arms over his head, but it's just the arms. They're like were like ripped off of the kid's body, and there's like little chunks of little kid arm meat hanging off of them. And the dude has like little kid meat blood pieces on his face. And he's like, ha 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 ha. Because that's what evil guys do in movies. They laugh maniacally. And, uh, Taniguchi gets super pissed about this. And there's like this flash of light. It's not clear exactly what it is. Uh, we, we then get this like, cool stop motion metal and wires attacking the head of Taniguchi, which is like, that was some of the best shit in the first movie. The the first movie had all this amazing stop motion, um, oddly edited stuff in it that really kind of made that movie what it was. So we get some of that in this, but it's like all these wires are just like, just like wrapping around Taniguchi's head. And, um, we get like a, we get like a, like a couple flashes of a, 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 a separate training montage happening somewhere else. We don't know if it's an actual place or if it's just within the mind of Taniguchi, but we get, we get another look at, it's basically a factory of dudes with no shirts on working out but using sort of improvised exercise implements, like anything heavy that you can lift over your head and people are doing pull-ups off of anything that you can do a pull-up off out of. Um, anyways, so, <laughs> so the, 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 the thug guys, I'm just going to call them the soul takers because that's what they look like. So the soul takers bring back that weird gun to 
um, you know, the weird gun from the beginning that they shot Taniguchi in the stomach with. So they bring that weird gun back to this guy who looks like, uh, he looks like, uh, Mao, the, uh, the dictator from the 20th century in China killed a whole bunch of people. Uh, yeah, he looks like Mao. We're just going to call him Dr. Mao because he's wearing a lab coat. So <laughs> they bring the gun back to Dr. Mao and, uh, Teneguchi is, he gets abducted and then brought to this factory place. And the factory place is the same place where the like, where like the, the factory training montage full of sweaty dudes is at. So it's an actual place. And so, uh, Taniguchi gets abducted. He gets brought there. He gets tied to a chair and then they, uh, rig him up with all of this. Like they put this like helmet on his head and goggles and there's wires connected to it. And so he, he basically looks like he's doing his best, like weapon X cosplay. If you remember like, uh, okay. Weapon X is a character in the Marvel, (laughs) Marvel comic books. The X-Men thing, the uh, Wolverine, his name is Logan, and he doesn't remember anything. You know, he doesn't remember his past. And he, uh, yeah, he, when, he, when he becomes Weapon X, like his memories wiped. But there's like, there's all these images of Weapon X, and he's got this fucking helmet, this like pseudo VR, like, helmet with wires and shit coming out of it like strapped to his head so that, that's what that's what Taniguchi looks like now he looks like he's doing like a weapon x cosplay and um and he's also forgotten he doesn't have memory of his childhood and weapon x doesn't have memory of who he was before he was weapon x there you go tied the whole thing together and so so the headset he is first He's wearing this headset thing, right? So it's got goggles and it's bolted to his head and shit. So he's shown, uh, was it Dr. Mao? Is like, show him some calm images. So they show him some like images of like a field and of like a young boy who's literally playing the, uh, I'm going to, I am not going to put my index fingers on the corners of my, eyes and lift up my eyelids up and down and say Chinese, Japanese, dirty knees, look at these. But that's basically what the boy in the movie is doing. Okay. I'm not doing that. The little Japanese boy in this VR simulation that they're making (laughs) our main character watch. He sees this little kid in the field and he starts doing Chinese, Japanese, dirty knees, look at these, which I was not I've never I don't know if I've ever seen an Asian person do that before, but they do it in this movie and and then after that, uh, like in the, the this VR dreamy like world, he his legs he he grows like big heavy metal legs. It just looks like his his legs are filled with his pants are like filled with like toaster ovens or some shit. They're just bulky and just they're all clinging like there's metal and shit in there. And so he grows these big legs and then he, you know, the kid runs off and he can't keep up with the kid. And, um, and the image 
of the man who killed Minori appears and a uh, a like metal phallic alien chest burster emerges from his chest from um Taniguchi's chest and and he shoots all of the there's like oh, there's cameras all over this warehouse this factory warehouse thing there's like the shit's being monitored everywhere so like he's tied to this chair and then this fucking that's the best way I can describe it it's like it's like a penis alien chest burster gun thing emerges from his chest and shoots all the camera equipment monitoring this experiment basically and so this whole experiment is being conducted by uh, Dr. Mao and the metal fetishist. And so this movie is a little more like uh, David Cronenberg's Videodrome than the first movie. And uh, specifically because there's a direct uh, uh, experimentation on one character and then the, they're trying to provoke some sort of transformation in that character. So it reminds me it reminds me a little bit of video drum so i've i've heard comparisons and i think that's that's accurate comparison even though everything is like insane and crazy in this movie so the metal fetishist he he, he makes a finger gun <laughs> and he shoots dr mao in the head and kills him so now he's the head guy in charge now and um i mean he, he probably was the head guy in charge the whole time anyways but he just needed dr mao to create the technology so so basically what the gun does, that like weird gun thing, basically you could shoot somebody and they'll temporarily have like Iron Man, um, Iron Man in the context of this movie, not Iron Man Marvel Universe. They will, they will, they will kind of temporarily have Iron Man powers where they can like transform their arm into like a gun cannon and, you know, they're probably super strong and, you know, but temporarily, it's not like they are an Iron Man. They just are kind of temporarily ones, but this gun is what makes it happen. So, so, uh, yeah. Uh, so yeah. Uh, metal fetishist finger gun shoots the fucking, uh, doctor and kills him. And, uh, <laughs> where was I? Oh yeah. And, um, so Taniguchi, breaks free from the chair and with a cluster of like gun barrels from his chest and his uh, Mega Man arm gun, he kills one of the soul taker guys. And what I mean is like literally from his chest, just imagine like a dozen various sized gun barrels emerge from his chest. And so he kills one of the soul taker guys and, uh, um, the other soul taker shoots himself with the weird gun. So he basically inoculates himself. Um, cause like the two soul taker dudes, you can tell they were like, friends or brothers or butt buddies or some fucking shit. But 
the dude shoots himself up because he's like, okay, well, this guy killed my friend, so now I'm gonna go kill him. But he has an arm gun, so I need if I if he's gonna have an arm gun, I'm gonna have an arm gun. So he shoots himself with the gun that'll give him Iron Man powers, and then um, so we can go fight Taniguchi, right? So. So Taniguchi escapes, and the other soul taker dude wants revenge, uh, like I said. And so Taniguchi, I mean, he goes to, they, they, they go to have, like, you think they have, like, this epic standoff, but um, Taniguchi just ends up shooting the soul taker guy and uh, just killing him, like, pretty much immediately. And, uh, yeah, they, they set it up like they're going to have this epic battle and shit. And it was kind of a big fucking nothing, uh, sandwich. And, you know, they even had like fight music, like get you all hyped up. And it, it sounded like the, the fight music sounded like, uh, uh, do you remember the toy, uh, electric karate fighters? <laughs> That's what the chase music and like the action music in the sound movie sounds like. Like dun, 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 dun. Look it up. There's a game called uh, Karate Fighters, which was kind of like a karate modern day version of Rock'em Sock'em Robots, I guess. <laughs> if I had to compare it to something, but then then they made electronic Karate Fighters. But yeah, the 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 music from that commercial sounds like the action fight music in this movie, but. So Taniguchi, um, he, he like kills the dude and he's like, he's not full Iron Man. Like in the last movie where like his entire body is consumed with metal and steel. And he looks like a fucking junk robot of some kind. He just, it's just like, he's got these weird indentations on his forehead like he's a Star Trek character, and then he has a gun arm, and then at will he can have the like cluster gun barrels and emerge from his chest and shoot shit. And then he has this like really goofy smile on his face. This it's kind of creepy as fuck, actually. Uh, he has like this creepy pasta smile on his face that looks like. Um, uh, do you remember the the ninja guys in? RoboCop 3. In RoboCop 3, there was, like, I want to say there was two of them. There was, like, two sort of, like, suited Asian gentlemen with, like, katanas on, like, strapped to their backs. And um, they fight RoboCop, and then you realize that those guys are robots, too. But they're, like, full-blown androids. But, uh, like, RoboCop... Like, dick slaps one of them, and then their face is all damaged, and it's frozen in this, like, psychotic, smiling position. That's, like, the look that Taniguchi's now making when he's, like, like, ugh, I just fucking murdered somebody with my Iron Man powers. That's that's what his face looks like, and it, I've, that made me laugh when I saw that. <laughs> so then, um... So then we have another training montage. This time, uh, the metal fetishist has a training montage. I th I think I think that's what it is. But mentally, there's 
like it'll cut to his face and I don't know it'll like cut to his face and then it'll cut to there'll be like two dudes wrestling like freestyle wrestling on a mat and like hip tossing each other and then it'll cut to another dude doing like power cleans and then another dude doing one of those like spring loaded chest expander exercise things and then it'll cut to another guy who's jumping rope um i don't i don't know if he's like mentally training or if he's maybe maybe he's just training to be a um a peeping tom pervert man it's it's not certain why why this is being shown but then we cut to the warehouse factory of shirtless men you know, where like Dr. Mao got killed and uh, <laughs> all that shit. And, and then standing at attention is, uh, so it's like all the, it's like all the, all the shirtless dudes in the factory are now like standing in formation. Right. And then the metal fetishist is coming by and shooting each one of them in the chest with the Iron Man gun, because now he needs an army because the fucking, uh, Taniguchi fucking escaped and he already killed two, two of the main badass guys, the guys with the coolest leather jackets, you know, he killed them. So it's like, okay, now we need to get serious. Now everyone needs to have fucking transformative robot metal powers in order to fucking beat this guy. So it's kind of like that scene in, uh, what was it? Schindler's list. <laughs> When uh, the dude would like every every morning he'd line up all the Jews in the in the in the concentration camp up every morning, and then he would shoot every other Jew. Yeah, it, it, it's like that, except instead of Jews, it's shirtless Japanese guys who are covered in oil, and instead of shooting them uh, in the head, it, he's shooting them in the chest. Uh, with a gun that gives you uh, Mega Man uh, robot powers. And instead of shooting every other one of them, he shoots all of them. All right? Good. Glad we got that cleared up. So, after realizing that when Taniguchi... He actually... there, There's a moment where... Uh, we as the viewer realize that Taniguchi, when he was shot in the beginning of the movie, when they kidnapped his son, remember they shot him uh, with the weird Iron Man gun. They didn't actually shoot him. Like later, we find out that uh, was it his wife Kana is going through his closet and finds that the the bullet from that gun hit when like went into his jacket, but then it hit this. Uh, and I had to look it up because I she opens up this thing. This little electronic device, it's about the size of an iPhone. And you can tell that the bullet hit one side, but it didn't penetrate all the way through. And the thing that, that she was holding, I was like, what is that fucking thing? Is it like a, like some sort of like, like a calculator or some shit? It's this thing called a super memory computer. And it's this a little pocket electronic device where you 
you open it and it kind of does some of the features that your iPhone does. Um, it doesn't operate as a phone. It operates as an electronic address book. Um, you can take notes and I think it's also a calculator. So it only can do a, like a small handful of things, but, uh, yeah, Taniguchi had one in his pocket and the fucking Iron Man conversion gun didn't shoot him in the beginning. So, which means when Taniguchi transformed into his Iron Man form, he was transforming because he inherently had the ability to transform. Obviously, when he was provoked, he transformed when they took his kid and uh, when they showed him fucking upsetting images and shit. So it's like, whoa, game changer. So he's not like these other dudes that need to be shot up with this fucking gun. He doesn't need to be. He can just transform at will. And at will, I mean, it's sort of like it's an emotional trigger. You know how nowadays when people are emotionally triggered? Um... (laughs) He is emotionally triggered except uh um to become a um a a, a Mega Man robot destroyer demon instead of a whining pussy on the internet. <laughs> so in in probably the most emotional scene in the film, um and I and I like the scene. I was it's it's very powerful. And um, Kana, uh, Taniguchi's wife, has a total breakdown. So Taniguchi escapes the uh, the, the the factory, the CNC Music Factory, and he manages to make it home. And um, well, I mean, when he gets home, he's transformed back to his regular self. He's not all fucking, you know. Robocop three ninja faced and has a fucking gun arm. He's like his normal self and he shows up and he's like scared, you know, because he's transforming into this thing that lives within him and he doesn't have full grasp of like what it is or its capabilities or why it's happening. So he gets home and his wife is like, she's completely freaked out by him, but of course she's freaked about, uh, freaked out about everything else. Like, her fucking son getting murdered and <laughs> um so he comes home and he's basically like like babe i need your help i don't know what's happening to me i don't i'm going crazy I'm, I'm losing control there's people who are after us and she's having none of it she's basically like fuck you i'm going through my own level of misery now and, like, I don't have time to cater to your fucking shit also. So, she jumps into bed and basically hides under the covers. Like, under the blankets in the bed. And for, like, a few seconds, it's actually kind of funny because it's a very childish thing to do. It's like, like I don't want to talk to you, I hate you, and then jump under, jump under the blankets in the bed. And... And it's funny for like a second, but then he like rips the covers off of her and she's in the bed in like the fetal position and she's laying in a pile 
of their dead son, uh, Minori, like laying in a pile of his like like photos of him and his stuffed animals and his toys just piled into the bed and she's just laying amongst it. And who knows how long she's been laying there just crying her eyes out. And it's heartbreaking. It's, 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 it's a pretty, you know, and she's like scream, just keeps screaming his name. And it's, it's horrible. It's a, it's a, it's a, it definitely puts a human element, a much needed human element. Um, on you know at a point in the movie where you're like okay i need something to make sense in the real world and this scene kind of helps with that she, like him being in in the apartment is just making things worse so she's distraught she jumps up and she just runs out of the house and as soon as she gets outside to like the ground floor of the apartment building um she's immediately abducted by the metal fetishist and his goons so they roll up in a car, snatch her up, and take off. And Taniguchi is right behind them. And so he basically steals someone's bike and starts biking after them, which seems kind of silly. But it's for a reason. So this scene basically demonstrates how Taniguchi can transform into the Iron Man at will. Um by the way, it's 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 when he when he's in this movie when he transforms into like the Iron Man, it's a more of a streamlined sort of form of it where it's like his whole face doesn't transform and his whole body doesn't transform. It's just like his arm and his chest, and it seems more of like a superhero and and less like a a fucking robotic abomination of a thing. So I thought that was pretty cool. Um also, this whole scene is, it shows, like, what he's sort of, like, physically capable of. Like, he can do extraordinary uh, things, like, so the car's taking off, and he's able to keep up with the car on a bicycle, because he's got fucking superhuman power, so he can <laughs> ride a bike really fucking fast. And then, so fast to a point where he actually jumps off the bike, and is sprinting after the car and he's running so fast he's able to jump off of the road and run on along on the side of the of an actual building. He's running on the building like sideways. That's how fast he's able to move. Okay, so uh, he jumps off the side of the building like fucking Spider-Man and jumps on top of the car while they're trying to speed off. And then um, one of the dudes in the car who, you know, one of the fucking oiled up guys from the factory um, who got shot up with the fucking Iron Man transformer gun. His, like that guy, one of those guys has a fucking Mega Man arm and like shoots through the ceiling of the car and fucking knocks Taniguchi off. So that, that scene was good in demonstrating a few things like, like it, it kind of locked into your mind that Taniguchi, when emotionally triggered, he could turn, he can access his Iron Man powers to save people that he cares about, you know? And, but it also shows that he's vulnerable. Like he can get shot and blown off the fucking car. He can 
experience pain and fatigue and shit like that. Probably not die like a normal person. Like he seems pretty fucking indestructible, but so he can be stalled for several moments, kind of like the T one thousand. You know, it's like the T one thousand can you can shoot him a bunch of times and it'll knock him to the ground, but it's not enough to kill him. Like he will get back up and keep going. So now they've successfully the metal fetishist and his goons have successfully uh, kidnapped Kana. And they go back to the uh, CNC Music Factory, and the uh, and the shirtless goons that were shot with the Iron Man gun start to grow this like scabby rash all over their bodies, and it looks like um, Oreo cookie dust, and it's just like packed onto their faces and on their heads and all over their chests and backs and shit. I think it's supposed to symbolize, like, rusted metal. Because it's like, you can get shot with the gun, and you can have powers, but the powers will wear off. And once they wear off, you are you go back to normal, but you also have, like, some sort of uh, residual... Uh, I don't know. I don't know if there's, like, a like a metallic... But you, you, your your skin can could endure, like things that metal can endure like rusting that's what i think that is is like these guys are like have chunks of rust all over their bodies it's weird and it's sort of a side effect of after you kind of have the um the fucking iron man powers for a little bit so uh Taniguchi gets to the CNC music factory and kills one of uh he kills one of the disposable goons just like right away and he's here to save Kana, and um, also this is where him and the metal fetishists will have their final battle. So he transforms into his like new Iron Man look, and uh, it looks pretty cool. <laughs> and um, actually, this time. He transforms into like a bigger, more absurd version of the Iron Man form that he had in the first movie. The first one just kind of looked like, um, like you ever see any of those like, um, like fan films of like RoboCop where where people just like stick tin foil and shit onto themselves and wrap themselves and like speaker wider. That like that's what the Iron Man suit looked like in the first movie. In this one, it's a lot more sophisticated. It's like it's almost like uh, black stone. It almost looks like raw, like raw iron or something. And um, and and then we finally get some stop motion, like wire and metal animation, like in the first movie. So it's like it's pretty deep in the movie before we get more of like some stuff that reminds us of the first movie. So um, his new form, uh, it's pretty tight. It looks like, you know what it looks like? It looks like, uh, you know the band Guar? <laughs> the metal band Guar? There's, there's, there was briefly, back in the day, there was a character in Guar named uh, Techno Destructo. Look up Techno Destructo. And uh, there's another character from Guar 
called uh, Beefcake the Mighty. So you take those two characters and mix them together. That's what the new Iron Man look looks like. It's ridiculous and preposterous and kind of silly looking, but it's also kind of fucking cool. So the metal fetishist uses his psychic powers. I don't know if it's he, you, it's rather he uses psychic, his like psychic like powers or, um, an electro magnets, like something you'd see in like a scrapyard, you know, where they would take the big flat round magnet thing. And then they would, they would use it to like pick up cars or pick up scrap metal and move it to another area. And then they turn the magnet off and everything falls off of it. You know what I'm talking about? I don't know if they use one of those or if he's using like his mind, but he used it to suck the iron man into this giant hydraulic press that's actually situated in the floor. So you've seen movies where like there would be a car at like a scrapyard being like smashed in one of those machines that smashes a car flat. It's like one of those things instead of, but it's like, it's like mounted into the floor. So metal fetishist gets, I mean, it's Taniguchi, but I'm just going to call him the Iron Man from this point on. So he sucks Iron Man into this thing and then activates the, uh, hydraulic press to like come down and smash uh, the Iron Man and Iron Man um, is able to like, I guess psychically outsmart the metal fetishes. And then he like sucks the metal fetishes in towards the press as it's coming down and he's able to roll out of it. And the hydraulic press like chops the metal fetishist like head off, which was, you know, kind of hokey, but I was like, okay, you had to beat the bad guy somehow, I guess it was like at an hour and one minute, we finally get a visually awesome montage of like stop motion animation with crazy like wires and metal and color patterns and, naked ass cheeks and everything grinding to a sudden halt. And then we jump to a like sepia bathed flashback where it's explained that the metal fetishist and the Iron Man are actually brothers and their dad was a, he was basically a mad scientist for lack of a better term. And he was a mad scientist who would create, like, there's a scene where he, like, uh, it shows the, the two of them as, like, children. It shows, like, metal fetishist and Iron Man as kids. And their dad's like, I'm going to show you a magic trick. Let me show you this thing I made. And he pulls this, like, napkin off of this table. And underneath it is this, It's it looks like a cat, maybe a giant rat or something. But it sounds, it looks and sounds like a cat that he was able to fuse with like a tea kettle. And the thing is like, and it's fucking twitching. And I'm sure it's trying to tell you in cat language, uh, please fucking kill me. And, um, the mon, this, this sort of like, I'm just gonna call it the dad montage. And then in the dad montage, uh, montage, like dad experiment, experimented on his two kids, his two boys where, um, 
well, the metal fetishist and uh, Iron Man. And he basically experimented where he gave them both guns and the two boys were able to absorb the guns into their bodies through their hands. And that's kind of how they were um, through that mutation. However, it was done allowed the boys to basically have the, the finger guns, the handguns. Like they can literally make their hand look like a gun, point at something, go bang. And it would actually shoot the thing that whatever they were shooting at. Okay. So the montage again moves over to um, dad letting the boys target practice with their finger guns, except they're practicing on a living dog. And it's actually a pretty cute dog. And when I saw this in theaters, you can like the scene opens with the two boys and they're pointing their finger guns out and they're like trying to aim. And the dad's behind them like, okay, now, now carefully aim. And, and, and when both of your minds are, are linked together, I want you both to shoot and kill the dog. And you're like the dog. And then the camera whips around to the dog that he's talking about. And it's like this cute dog in the whole audience goes, Oh, <laughs> so, but even in that montage, it showed that like Taniguchi who was older, wasn't really interested in learning how to shoot the fucking dog. He was more interested in just like being a kid, but metal fetishist was younger and a little more susceptible. And, um, he actually ended up shooting the fucking dog, <laughs> which, um, his mother who like just got laundry off a clothesline in the backyard sees this. So she knows that she's married to a mad scientist who's trying to turn their two sons into monsters, basically. So, Let's see what else happened in the uh, montage. So all these memories are on video somehow. So if you're wondering, where is this flashback taking place? It's taking place on a television. And I somehow these memories were recorded somehow. And... And it was, and it's a lot of it is from, I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to tell whose point of view it's coming from, but perhaps metal fetishist was programmed to record his own memories. So if the, and at least I know like none of this makes any fucking sense, but it, it, this, this part theoretically can make sense because in this world you can take any type of technology and fuse it into a human. So unlike a T-1000, um, like a T-1000 um, can only make solid metal shapes. They can't form complex machines, right? But a fucking Iron Man can do that. It can absorb and operate a complex machine within its body Presumably, if it's made of metal, I guess, or primarily of metal. So, but again, it's it's kind of unclear how all these memories are compiled onto a video. I just imagine it's kind of like uh, magic or something like that. So, one of these one, uh, memories is uh, Dad, Mad Scientist Dad, having sex with their mom. 
And they're not just having sex. They're having sex. Well, he's having sex with her at gunpoint. So you're like, is this kinky? Should I be enjoying watching this? Should I not be enjoying watching this? I don't know. So so at some point, the two boys see... Um, well, they, they, they see their dad fucking their mom and at gunpoint. And, and I think, I think that's relatable. I think there's a certain, um, there's a certain percentage of the population, at least, uh, that listen to the show that have walked in on your parents having sex. So that's, that's not too unusual. Um, at gunpoint, I don't know, probably a smaller, uh, ratio of the, of the listeners, um, I would imagine. But, um, so dad's having sex with mom at gunpoint and shoots her, uh, in the chest, like right as, uh, right, right at climax. So right as he comes, he like shoots her in the chest and the two boys see this and little Taniguchi just loses his shit turn transforms his arm into like a gun cannon thing and just turns on his dad and his dad sees his arm transform and he ends up shooting his dad to death but all and also in his rage ends up shooting his mom to death as well just fills the fucking room with lead it just kills the both of them and the way it's explained, uh, Metal Fetishist explains to Kana that Taniguchi lost his memory after this incident took place. So he killed his parents, and then, I don't know, like the shock of it kind of gave him amnesia, and he couldn't, he just couldn't remember anything after this point. So that's like, in, you know, because in the beginning, Taniguchi's like, I don't remember anything before I was adopted. When he was like seven, eight years old. So we cut now to the two brothers are now, they, they both meld into one giant, um, killdozer machine, basically like in part one, they, the two of them, since they're both basically capable of becoming these metal uh, weapons, the two of them like meld together into one giant killdozer and uh, the remaining members of the CNC music factory get their brains sucked out by this new powerful killdozer of these of metal fetishists and the Iron Man that are now one giant robot tank weapon psychic beast thing. <laughs> and so these like tubes shoot out of the fucking killdozer and go into the, all the fucking dudes brains and they, they get their brains sucked out by the new powerful killdozer. And I don't know exactly what the tubes are sucking. Is it sucking their brains is it sucking their souls, their memories, I don't know, but their souls and their bodies are absorbed in into the killdozer. So you can see their faces like a bunch of Han Solos and Carbonite 
stuck into the side of this giant metal contraption that is made up of these two beings. So they're absorbed. Um, they absorb these, the, like the rest of the, um, the oily factory guys, the minions, the goons, the whatever you want to call them, the cult. And they're absorbed like in uh, A Nightmare on Elm Street uh, Part 4. You'll remember that uh, Freddy Krueger has a scene where he takes a bunch of the uh, characters and um, puts their souls into meatballs on a pizza. And then he ends up eating the pizza of souls. (laughs) And then later Freddy Krueger opens up his sweater and you can actually see the faces of the souls of the children of Elm Street like pushing out through the skin in his chest. You can see their screaming faces. It's it's rather grotesque and and goofy at the same time. That's what this new and improved Iron Man metal fetishist killdozer contraption looks like. And it has tank treads. It looks it's crazy. It's this giant mobile death machine. So so now this contraption is now mobbing down the street, like in part one and uh, the end of part one, they, you know, the two of them meld together and then they become one giant destructive robot. And their whole goal was to turn the entire world into metal, you know? But again, this movie and the first movie are not really connected in any way. Um, they're, I mean, they're connected in that there's the same characters, but it's a completely different story. And it's frustrating. Um, kind of, It's like American Horror Story. <laughs> it's like every episode, every season has the same actors, but it's a different story, and the entire thing is really frustrating. So they're, so they're rolling down the street, and um, we cut to Taniguchi's dream that he uh, explained in the very beginning of the movie of it's him uh, and um, Minori and Kana and the three of them are alive and completely unharmed. And they're walk and they're walking together through a large open space. And as the camera pans back, you can see in the, on the horizon, it's a complete city in ruins, like a completely destroyed city skyline. And it looks pretty good. I imagine there was some type of, I don't know, the way they did it. I don't know if it was like a matte painting or whatever, but it looked cool. But the two of, uh, the three of them rather, are just walking completely alone, no people, no living anything in sight. And they're walking through this destroyed urban wasteland. Yes, that is the end of Tetsuo 2 Body Hammer. And oh boy. Um, I don't want to say that this movie is like hard to get through. It's just really difficult to understand unless you watch it a few times. Because there's a lot being thrown at you constantly. So trying to just make sense of it is is um the first movie yeah there's there's so much shit thrown at you you're like i don't need to necessarily understand everything that's happening because there's so much the movie's so 
visually interesting that you can kind of you can kind of let go of the idea a little bit of like demanding that the movie make sense in terms of story. But in this movie, it's a bit, it's quite a bit more toned down than the first movie. But so it's like you, you want a little more clarity in, in story. And I think you only get that through repeat viewings but I understand if people don't want to repeat view this movie, but I don't know. I, I think if you've seen the first film, you should just see the second film. And, uh, if you've seen the second film, you might as well watch the third one, which I have not done yet. And I will do that in the next episode. So I will do, um, I will complete the trilogy of Tetsuo and you know for some people this might be a great background movie you know at at a low to uh, no volume at all whatsoever you know if it's just on in the background if you're having a party and you just want something on on the TV with no sound on put this on this is this is this is interesting kind of just background visuals but I do recommend this movie and you know I don't necessarily think that you need to see these um, movies in order but um, you know if you're you're not just gonna watch part two like you're probably going to find out about part one first and then watch that out of curiosity and then you'll later find out that there are sequels and then you'll end up just naturally watching the sequel so I'd so yes I do recommend Tetsuo 2 body hammer. And um, I think that's going to do it for me, guys. Thank you so very much for listening. If you need to get a hold of me, you can send me any messages, um, complaints, movie recommendations uh, to my Instagram, which is skeleton underscore factory. And... I will see you next time where we will look at Tetsuo 3, The Bullet Man from 2009. But until then, this is Adam, rescuing your movie night one movie at a time. See you on the next one. Bye. Bye. Bye.